I set out to explore the idea of composting Christianity in this season, wanting to metabolize, to articulate, to co-create an alternative to the philosophical idea of in or out, (laughs) of edges of the inside and the outside, of a container of a specific belief system that so many of us no longer feel at home in. And instead of feeling like the only option is for us to be reactionarily against or in deconstruction and reconstruction and more deconstruction, (laughs) that perhaps there was an alternative image that we could look to, to consider what might really be going on. Composting felt, felt right to me. And this process of composting is one in which, as we've explored over this season, we're having to include what is most monstrous about this empire religion um, that has created such destruction and, and been so pivotal in the foundation of this country here in the United States and still influencing the politics that tend to be most divisive, destructive, and most dualistic. And that includes the institutions of of patriarchy, of domination. So for composting, we are learning how to metabolize these institutions, these worldviews, these ideas, and allow for something new to emerge in the messy, decaying heap of unknowing. Last week, we explored the facing of the monstrous, of the cracks, of the ruptures with philosopher and author and trickster Dr. Bayo Okomolafe. And this week, we're going to continue that exploration of reframing what is monstrous as perhaps the site of emergence of the divine hidden behind the face of the monster of the deep with the great theologian Catherine Keller. Catherine Keller is a contemporary Christian theologian and professor of constructive theology at Drew University's Graduate Division of Religion. Now, she's known for lots of powerful contributions, especially around social and ecological justice. But the reason I was most excited to speak with her today is around her work in process theology. Now, we're going to dig into what process theology is all about. But I first encountered her work reading her book, The Face of the Deep, A Theology of Becoming, in which she explored the tehomic, this word tehom, the the Hebrew word for the face of the deep at the beginning of Genesis, as not being a chaos that needed subjugation, but as the monstrous face of possibility, as raw potentiality. As we've been exploring, there is so much about Christian theology that has a lot more to do with Plato than it has anything to do with its founder. And our notions of God tend to separate God out as above and outside of time, as ruler over the chaotic, the uncertainty, (laughs) the unknowable, instead of being in the messy process with us. Now, we were able to explore with Ilya Delio how an evolutionary theology begins to move us more into this place of co-creative shared becoming, that God would actually have skin in the game with us, an unknowing outcome. And all of these juicy ideas were 
hugely instrumental in my own unfolding spirituality from the days of Another Name for Everything, which again was all a part of my intent in sharing some of these thinkers and ideas with you on this season was to show how I have been in the process of composting Christianity into this path of creative unknowing, <laughs> this weird mutt landscape that I don't, you know, so many of us find ourselves in where we, we don't really know what we are, but we know that we are becoming together and we're interested in a more ecological, creative worldview. By the way, a quick note about that shared creative worldview I have an important announcement at the end of this episode that I want to make sure that you're aware of now so that you can tune into it at the end. I am sharing a little bit about the coursework that you've heard me and others mention throughout this season. It is an exploration of the path of unknowing and exploring our creative and spiritual cycles in relationship with the cycles of the seasons and with the earth. So if you're interested in that, make sure to stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear more about this opportunity to join me and others for a year's worth of deepening into how unknowing plays itself out in unleashing our greatest creative inspiration and possibility. But now let's dive into the second to last episode. We are nearing the very end of this season of unknowing. Composting Christianity with the great, formidable <laughs> Catherine Keller. All right, Catherine, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I have shared with my friends that I, I feel like I'm interviewing the Meryl Streep of theology right now. So like I'm super excited <laughs> and, you know, a little intimidated, but just incredibly grateful to be able to dive into the topics uh, that we're going to explore today on this season of Unknowing. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, I'm delighted to join you. I'm just uh, very intrigued with with what you're up to, with the kind of questions you raise around unknowing and the sorts of the sorts of knowledge that are, I suspect, uh, revealing themselves all around that uh, mysterious shadowy zone. <laughs> so usually, I like to begin on the show by asking my guests about the maps that you were handed growing up, where you began. Um, what were the parameters and the borders and the markers that you were given? And these are the maps of knowing that we usually start out with. And how did it lead to your becoming a theologian today? How many hours do we have, Brie? <laughs> yeah, I can, of course, use the, the psychoanalytic help. But actually, really, let me try to condense it, because there's not a very clear answer, because it was... It was a strange sort of map. If there was one, it would be a map that looks something like a Kandinsky, and Mother did have great talent, I think, to be a, a painter, an abstract sort of painter, but life circumstances mitigated against that. Uh, she was really trapped in the in the sexist world of immediate, you know, post-war America, and she married too instinctively a couple of times, my father and then my stepfather, and she just ended up having, you know, like four children and no chance to develop her own vocation or her painting at all because she couldn't do it as a hobby on the side. It was, it was very um, engulfing for her. So she also read a lot. So my mother is, a, is an impressive figure, almost tragic, except she had a joie de vivre that would pick things up. But a lot of time there was just alcoholically intense, you know, disappointment in life. But other times there was adventure. We had to move all the time. 
all the time <laughs> because my stepfather was mentally, I think, disabled from the war and couldn't really keep jobs. So it, it was a very chaotic upbringing, but there were some beautiful stretches. I was three and a half years in Athens, Greece. That was by far our most stable time. And my mother got to hang out with some expat artists and all. Uh, and I had a view of the Parthenon out from the balcony. So there were beauties amidst the chaos. And that obviously has something to do with my then needing to read a book called Face of the Deep that is all about creation out of chaos, you know, correcting the, the false reading of Genesis that has dominated the Western imagination, which is the creatio ex nihilo. There's no nothing that things are created from in Genesis. There's the, tur the turbulent maternal sea, uh, and there's darkness over its face, uh, and there's a tohu vabohu earth. So the need to, to find creativity through chaos was probably above all the vocation uh, that I was fortunately drawn to. There were occasional bouts of Christianity in my family because my stepfather had a little bit of training in theology from France before the war. Uh, so he could occasionally get a job as a pastor. He did that about three times during my life, and th that would last for a few months. And during that time, uh, my mother would read some theology. <laughs> and other than that, she just read existentialism, uh, Sartre, uh, maybe some Jaspers. So she had a philosophical mind and an artistic talent, uh, but no chance to have community in those things, no chance for uh, development vocationally. But I got a lot of bursts of existentialism and its kind of atheism, and then occasionally little <laughs> little twitters of, of theology when it was convenient. But one of, one of those moments of, of theology happened uh, when I was in high school, and uh, that, that Jules was having to make a living at, at a church. And uh, it happened to be uh, in Boston, and he happened to have a student pastor working for him who was at Harvard and told him about a professor there. And I happened to have gotten into Radcliffe at that point. So I happened then to take a course with Paul Hansen, a professor of Old Testament, so it was a gift out of this chaotic milieu with my father who didn't read anything and couldn't keep jobs in the church. But he, he handed me that treasure, that key, that clue from someone else. And that course really gripped me. And anyway, at that time, you know, doing the anti-Vietnam marches and all that. So, so the social justice orientation of the Hebrew prophets that Paul Hansen brought through very strongly really understanding that those biblical prophets are the origin of, of what we would consider social justice movements uh, was very important to me uh, and stayed stayed with me. <laughs> and, and at the same time, I was able to explore a more mystical sensibility that I needed because of the internal uh, chaos and, and darkness that I had taken into myself. Uh, and so a certain sense of Meditation, it was in the form of Zen meditation for me while I was in high school. Uh, but going into the emptiness and there, finding a space amidst the chaos, that, that was crucial for me. And then through more family chaotic circumstances, I ended up uh, shifting from Harvard to, uh, to Heidelberg. 
which I was going to just take a year's leave of absence, but I ended up staying at Heidelberg. Therefore, I don't have a college degree. I went on to graduate school, and somehow they didn't need a degree from me. But never mind all of that. It's just to make make clear the texture of the chaos is quite graphic and serious, and yet there were spaces for discovery and exploration that I was able to take advantage of, uh, perhaps more fully than my younger siblings were, unfortunately. But I then, you know, found a philosopher in the in the philosophy and religion program there in Heidelberg, uh, who opened me up to new depths of an understanding of the universe, of the cosmos. And he was uh, one of the leading early voices of ecological thinking uh, in Germany. He was a leader, perhaps the first uh, mature voice in the in the exposition of, of the uh, pollution of, of the Rhine River. So that would occasionally trickle into uh, into the lectures that he offered. So I, you can see here some origins of of a, of a social justice approach to biblical religion, and then to a more philosophical uh, approach to the non-human, to nature as a whole, and 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 therefore the commitment to environmental change and justice. So that you know eventually. Through more steps, uh, seminary, uh, well, I found my way very thankfully to study in Claremont with Jean Cobb. Uh, I had lucked into uh, process thought in the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead and uh, from 100 years ago uh, and had been then made aware of a whole school of theology that was centered around that process philosophy. So... Um, I was able to get a fellowship and 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 go there. And at, at that point, I was ready for disciplined study, and that was uh, a thousand miles away from my family, uh, which was good. And <laughs> I was able to focus and 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 find my pathway there uh, as a as a process theologian, then able to integrate eco-social justice themes uh, into this vision of the universe. But, you know, because it's a universe that's so a dynamic, so in process, process is the first principle in Whitehead, <laughs> not God. Whitehead has a concept of God, um, but it's creativity that is, that is the first principle, and God is creativity's first creature. And that's why I love process. <laughs> Please keep going. <laughs> so that, that creativity picked up on, on what was most beautiful in my past and the talent that was there in my mother, the hope. Uh, uh, and it it continued that capacity now in a very systematic way to create to create at the edges of chaos, as as Whitehead puts it. You know that complexity emerges at the edges of the edges of chaos. He says. So I found a very a very ordered <laughs> philosophical cosmology uh, for for really coming to a a, a sustainable sense of the, the creativity uh, that underlies the universe and therefore strategies for working uh, meaningfully uh, with, the, with the chaos, um, you know, for, for being able to embrace that process rather than, rather than be overwhelmed by it, shut down by it, afraid of it, uh, which was a real possibility for me as well. So I'm, I'm just very grateful to the good luck or the, the synchronicity or the providence, whatever one's vocabulary is, that, that got me finally to 
uh, to study theology in Claremont. So I think that's the, that's the, the oh, long version the answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> Which I love, and I'm grinning. I mean, like my face hurts because I've been grinning as you've shared this whole journey because it feels like, you know, it feels like improv jazz. <laughs> it feels like notes that have leapt off the page and become alive. Uh, and that's so much of what I want to discuss today, which is that, you know, for many people, Christianity has felt dead or has has become a map of sorts in which in which the the notes are written on the page and we've been given particular theologies. And so people arrive at the edges of those maps and and they're unsatisfied by them and they want they're longing for something more uh, on the edge of chaos <laughs> that chaos you know mm-hmm. and because that's where life happens because that's where where eros is like converted in our bodies into the creative impetus and so i think so many folks listening are going to really enjoy the journey uh, in, in understanding the foundational transition from notes on a page version Christianity to improv jazz, which is kind of what I want to talk about with mm-hmm. process theology. So diving right into your work, um, in your book, The Cloud of the Impossible, you define and compare apophatic theology, which is this mystical theology, in the work of Dionysius, and then the cloud of unknowing. So, as this podcast is called Unknowing, I wonder if you could help us understand, first of all, what we mean by mystical theology. What do we mean by this word, apophatic theology? And how that can be understood as an orientation toward unknowing. Well, thanks, Bree. I bet you've found interesting ways of answering that very question at other times on this podcast. But yeah, I'd love to think with you about that connection of the apophatic cloud to mysticism. So mysticism is, of course, a much broader concept than the apophatic. I mean, mysticism would probably refer to that aspect of experience, uh, often termed spiritual, sometimes religious, sometimes not at all connected to a religion, but that aspect of experience in, in which a sense of, of something... Uh, mysterious comes into our awareness. We might not feel we see it or we know it or we quite get it, but mysticism is suggesting that something mysterious is coming into our consciousness that seems to underlie all of the everyday impressions and objects and processes of our so-called normal lives. But mysticism suggests that there's, there's something underlying, there's some kind of glow or shadow <laughs> or glowing darkness, to use that phrase, the brilliant darkness from Dionysius, that there's some kind of mysterious glow that enters and it might somehow circulate through our everyday experience, or it might burst in in poetic moments, or it might be a single kind of transforming experience, a vision, an audition, something that in a very brief interval of time interrupts one's life and might actually change the the course of it. So mysticism as experience happens in many different 
ways. And for me, it's more that first. It's more uh, a bit of a, a shadowy glow that moves through things that sometimes makes me aware of it and then just suggests a meaningfulness to things that otherwise uh, I can lose touch with. But that's sort of talking mysticism in general and mysticism in, in the whole history of, of religions has taken so many forms in Christianity, which I'm most uh, instructed in. Of course, it often took a very erotic form, especially with the women mystics, a kind of erotic mysticism that they would often, for good reason, keep very secret, <laughs> but write about it right. uh, in, in, in journals that were published much later. Uh, or share just with some sisters, perhaps, in their convent. Uh, so there's, there's that very erotic mysticism, and there are forms of, of mysticism that uh, seem to be more, uh, more intellectual, uh, more of the sense of, mm. of an altered understanding of the world. Uh, and, and it's it's more likely through that form of mysticism that the apophatic comes. It's in a mysticism that is changing our understanding of things that there is often the apophatic dimension. That is, it, it, it comes to someone who perhaps is a theologian. My favorite is perhaps Nicholas of Cusa, but mm -hmm. You named uh, Pseudo Dionysius and the author of The Cloud of Unknowing. They're all so important in this. And they're all uh, scholars, intellectuals, uh, and writers uh, who at, at some point become aware uh, of this brilliant darkness <laughs> that is shadowing <laughs> their thinking. Uh, they become aware uh, that for all that they're knowing, delivers them even about <laughs> the religious matters, perhaps even about God, for all that they feel that they know and that their tradition has taught them, they become aware that at the very heart of what they know is the unknown. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that opening up in that luminous darkness is a depth that goes down and beyond whatever uh, they felt they knew. And this can be a crisis, this can be an ecstasy, can be a mix. Um, it's certainly an illumination, but an illumination not of the bright sort that exposes uh, the details of reality with more clarity. It's the opposite. I mean, that it, it exposes, it exposes the the hitherto unknown depths of, of reality to them. And it is especially, of course, in Christian mysticism, uh, an apophasis of, of God that is a, is a, then becomes this teaching, this teaching of the unknowability of the divine. You know, that if there's anything we know about God, it's that God cannot be known. And, and they're all aware that they're on the edge of heresy with this because what makes orthodoxy orthodox is that there are right teachings, orthodoxos, <laughs> things that you know. Right. You are taught to know them by those who know, and then you know them. Mm -hmm. uh, and other things you don't know. But 
what's important about God are the things that you can you can say in a creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You know, you know these things. God is the Father. God is right. <laughs> the creator. Um, and uh, that, you know, none of that gets erased in apophatic Christianity, uh, but it gets radically relativized. Mm. The apophatic mystics then know that all of this confessional language, all of the theological language uh, is terribly limited, is deeply flawed, is finite Mm -hmm. because we are finite and because Mm -hmm. our language is finite and because we're trying to talk about what is not finite. We're trying to talk about an infinity, an infinity of meaning uh, or the infinite that we can give the nickname God to, but even that becomes, becomes questionable. All of those names come come into question, come into a, a, a kind of meditative uncertainty in this, in this apophatic tradition. So the notes on the page of theology don't become meaningless, don't become empty, and they, those notes on a page sketch out maps, but those maps in some cases eventually do lead into some, some very dark forests, some, <laughs> some mountain ranges with, with deep abysses <laughs> or with such heights to mount uh, that it seems impossible to ever get there. So the maps can point one hmm. to landscapes that simply exceed human capacities, hmm. but that speak to our capacities, that, that communicate that what we are involved in, what we are exploring has profound meaningfulness hmm in part because there is so much more (laughs) that it is a part of, Mm -hmm. and that is a part of it. But we can talk more about that, that relationality, that inner connectivity. But I, but I wonder, Brie, if I, if I quite got it, what you were asking. Perfectly, because I do think that this movement from, and even just the naming of this entire orientation within our Christian history. I think for many listeners, hopefully this is a great relief to discover that there's this thread of ultimate humility (laughs) woven into our, you know, very foundations. And yet we don't often, it's not as, as publicly facing and most, and a lot of people don't even know that it's there, that, that deep within the Christian tradition is this trap door, <laughs> this apophatic trap door into the moreness, which is what we cannot yet imagine about, about these notions of God that we have uh, created such delicate architecture around. <laughs> really? And, um, you know, edifices of belief, right? So, I want to ask you now, you brought up Kusa, so I'm glad that you did. I, I do want to dive into this how this mystical, apophatic way leads us into this non-separability or interrelatedness. Um, You know, at at least as I am beginning to process this or understand it, is that unknowing is an unfolding and unfolding of both of these ways of being, right? What we know and what we cannot know, of what we say, what we cannot say. Uh, Or maybe how I've started to think of it lately is unknowing is this sort of composting or digesting of the knowing, which is to say, only by digesting it 
into the deep cavern of our own bodies where they get torn apart by these great bacterial strains of communities that are inside of us. How monstrous, right? Only when we allow that knowing into these depths of ourselves can they pass through us until they become a life beyond what they were before or beyond what we could understand. So I wonder if you could help us digest this, right? This idea of how unknowing is related to interrelatedness. Um, Because I want to begin to build this progression for listeners from mystical theology to uh, process. Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. No, I love your metaphors, you know, of an improvisational jazz and of compost that, that don't suggest simple unknowing. With jazz, there's all kinds of knowing that's drawn upon. Right. Incredible amounts of training and expertise in the music and the instrument. And it's that knowing that allows the improvisation uh, that is at the edge of, of the unknown, that has uh, that spontaneity and that element of spontaneity. Let's keep that a little bit in mind, that element of sheer surprise and novelty. That is not always recognized mm-hmm. as having to do with mysticism. And I, I think it's key that element of the improvisational. So I'm really glad you brought that that imagery in. And then compost, a very different image. But again, it's it's an image like improvisational jazz of a of a creativity from chaos. <laughs> right. Uh, and yeah, and so that deep recycling that composting involves also is breaking down uh, the known <laughs> marketable, commodifiable elements. Uh, into something very different but that then will nourish uh, the next the next round of, of actual digestible food. Um, so it's it's really uh, lovely to keep that that sense of the the newness that arises out of the improvisation, the newness that arises uh, out of the the composting, and and we'll think a little bit about how that gets into the the folds of of relationality <laughs> because it has, it does have to do, as you're saying, I'm just really cycling through your own thoughts, Bree, because they're very, you're very uh, precise here. Um, it does have a lot to do with the humility that comes of this mysticism. It's not some kind of mysticism or pseudo mysticism that, you know, claims to really know the deeper truth of things, <laughs> unlike all of those superficial people who just see the shadows on the cave wall. Uh, so it's 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 not about an arrogance of, of those who, who really know. And yet, of course, there is a depth of knowledge that might be attained that isn't easy to share. But that can be taught in, in a lot of ways, some of them more like improvisational jazz, um, like stories, like poems, um, than like a catechism. But it's hard, I think, to make the connection between this um, sort of dark depth of things, even if it has its glow, even if its glow surrounds our, our world with a, new, with a new meaningfulness, a bit of a halo. Uh, it's hard to connect that that apophatic uh, recognition that there's something beyond our capacity to name it, to say it. It's hard to connect that to relationality and to the whole, say, process uh, philosophical thinking of, 
of a universe, uh, very concretely, very materially uh, thinking a universe in, in terms of, of everything being constituted, every single thing being constituted out of its relationships to its world. Uh, and when we move into that language of relationality, uh, we're moving into, I think, a very rich and needed discourse. It's a profoundly ecological view of the whole universe. There's some connection there between that ecology and your compost metaphor. <laughs> but the ecological universe of, of ultimately everything existing in interdependence with the rest of its world, then uh, at another level takes on such a depth of relationality that there is a certain mysticism to it. Uh, so we have Nicholas of, of Cusa saying that everything is in everything. And he works it out cosmologically. And so Nicholas of Cusa, who is writing this uh, De Docta Ignorantia, the knowing ignorance, uh, in the, the 1420s, actually in thinking in this kind of process way about the interrelatedness of everything to everything, goes right on and infers that the earth is not the center of the universe and that there is no single body that's the center of the universe because it itself is boundless, the universe. And, and so the earth is in movement and not the center. This is a hundred years before Copernicus who read Cusa, that's not usually spread around in our secular society, that it was a theologian who was onto that, but it's through the insight of interrelatedness. But what's interesting to your podcast is that Cusa is one of the greatest apophatic mystics. So he says things like, you know, the precise truth shines forth incomprehensibly in the darkness of our ignorance, right? The precise truth, or <laughs> incomprehensibly in the darkness of our ignorance. And it's in that ignorance, in his exploration of it, that he comes up with bursts of knowledge uh, that anticipate modern science by a hundred years, right? So a very precise kind of material knowledge is birthed through his apophatic mysticism, which is a very rigorous form of the apophatic. But th then what's the connection between that interrelatedness of everything to this, this darkness of unknowing? Well, he also says this, that because all things are in all things, therefore God is in all and all is in God. <laughs> Because everything is interrelated with everything else, therefore, God is in everything, and everything is in God. So it's a God of radical interrelatedness. But that God, because of containing the all of a boundless universe, is of necessity infinite and vastly exceeding uh, knowability. But it's not an empty infinity, it's an infinity of universe, and therefore of creativity unfolding, but unfolding in ways that endlessly exceed our knowledge, as any honest astrophysicist will tell you today, mm -hmm. and any honest quantum physicist as well. So it's 
an understanding of then a, a divinity that somehow uh, is full of this universe, and this universe is full of this divinity, and therefore that divinity is without bounds because always already uh, exceeding and sustaining, containing that that boundless unfolding of the word world. And it's Kuza who really develops the, the metaphor of, of the fold, explicatio, implicatio order, the order of unfolding and infolding that, that the one, call it God, the one, the one unfolds in and as the many and the many are infolded uh, in the one. So there's an unfolding and enfolding of God uh, and universe. So it's a, a very precise sense of an endless relationality uh, that is the dynamic of the infinite God. But because the infinite um, is infinite, of course it, it infinitely exceeds our capacity to know it. And yet by knowing this, uh, very luminous insights are born, not just simple ignorance. So that start that gets us in a in a half millennium yeah. old way at this question of relationality and unknowing, but I think we should go a little further with it, but let me pause there. <laughs> yeah, no, this is fantastic. And I want to digest this with the listeners who are taking all of this in. That in so many ways, Catherine, what you're describing is true of the nature wow. of love. In other words, these, these huge concepts, when we think about how we love, there is you know, and now I'm thinking of Luce Irigaray, which, by the way, <laughs> I have to tell you, one of my greatest joys in reading your work and studying your work is all of the Luce Irigaray sprinkled throughout it. There, somebody gave me one of her books, I Love to You, when I was 18. And I think since then, I feel like she has almost been a better guide into the unknowing even than the mystics, but don't tell the mystic lovers. Um, but <laughs> she's, she's fantastic. But I'm just thinking about the nature of love, which is this extension of, of longing. We can call it eros, this arrow of, of selfhood, of yearning toward the other, which is a mystery. So there is a space between us always. There is an unknowing that creates the spaciousness around which the longing can move into a creative action, into a bringing together or the complexity of relationality. And so I think for our listeners, as we're listening to these ideas, this isn't far from what we know to be true. In our relationships, these gaps exist we are always unfolding mysteries. And so love expresses itself in the in-between spaces of the, you know, the perceived mysteries, the mystery of me and the mystery of you. And our love offers itself to each other, not in a possessive way, hopefully, if it's healthy, right? But in a creative way, in a way that moves us into moreness. And so as we're listening to this idea of how the apophatic can be connected into process. Um, I, I wanted to draw that, kind of bring it down into, you know, the practical reality of how we operate, which is also, I think, and I've explored on this podcast, because I'm a musician and an artist, this, this yearning, how longing is a form of 
reconciling the ache of unknowing inside of ourselves, Mm -hmm. that when we reconcile with that ache, it's almost as if the ache reveals something true through our creativity um, because of the absence. So it's like the absence is the presence of something emerging in us. And I hope I haven't completely lost listeners with that one. But um, I'd like to continue down into this path of understanding the link between unknowing and process. So I wonder if you can introduce us to Whitehead. And you say, in Whitehead, it is the creative process, everlasting, infinite, unfinished, that gives rise to God and the world. God mediates as a principle of concretion, that creativity. Creativity drives God's becoming, never from nothing, in response to the becoming of the world. So help us understand what is so revolutionary about Whitehead's thinking, maybe in contrast to the more familiar grounds of Platonic and, you know, Aristotelian thought, if you could help us understand what that critical shift is that Whitehead brought to us. Yeah, um, briefly, right. So, I mean, it's a critical shift both from the Platonic forms of dualism in which that which is true, uh, is the expression of forms that are disembodied, but that are actually more uh, real uh, than the bodies that embody them. Uh, So there's the problem that emerges of a kind of devaluation of material bodies in the world. It's not clear that Plato meant that, but that's the effect of Platonism, uh, that there's a a, a dualistic disembodiment of of the ideas and of the divine uh, from the material world, Aristotle tried to correct that, but still was thinking then in terms of of these forms as changeless uh, in them, changeless forms informing the substance of our bodies, and that in Western thought then eventually got very concretized by especially the time of Thomas Aquinas, whose Aristotelianism really clarified that we are changeless. Uh, that we are we are embodiments of these changeless forms, and our bodies change, um, uh, and our minds too, because we're finite creatures. But we're basically self-identical substances, separate from other ones. Subjects and objects are separate substances uh, that that are identical with themselves through time. So you're definitely you, separate from me. And our relations are external to each other. So Whitehead is providing a big corrective to that presumption of separate substance. He's also providing a corrective to much more banal, modern, and kind of cheaply scientized views of matter as a bunch of of separate things, separate atoms, you know, like little Lego right. blocks. Exactly. Uh, so it, it, but there's this persistent common sense in the West of reality made up of separate things, subjects or objects that are uh, pretty much the same as themselves through time, though they might occasionally undergo some big shift, but their relations to other things are external to what they really are. Um, with Whitehead, that's blown out of the water. It was actually his experience of, of quantum physics in the 20s, just as it was being you know, developed. So he was one of the world's greatest mathematicians, so he was following this with great interest. 
Um, and it's th that real, it's what he figured out from quantum mechanics that made him quit his job in mathematics in England uh, to take a job at, at Harvard and, and do philosophy full time for the rest of his life. Because he realized this whole worldview that we have was wrong and needed to shift and needed philosophical help. And so what he offers instead of the separate permanent substances externally related is a world of events in process of relation. So what you are and what I am most really, most actually is what you are and I am at this moment. We are this actual occasion of reality and now at this moment and at this moment, but we are now events. And we are in our now events, events of relationship. So what I am now is no longer separable, Brie, from what you are. You are now in the Whiteheadian scheme, a part of what I am, a significant part at this moment. And you will always then be part of what I am. Mostly that will go unconscious. And it will be in there with the gazillions of other memories that our cells, and we know from cognitive science, carry almost all unconscious, but in there and somehow contributing and buzzing. Uh, and we work with whatever we can be conscious of. But in our conversation, uh, we are drawing our whole past of relations into play here. But we are also interacting uh, moment by moment in a way that is... Um, partly determining who we are becoming now and now and now. So instead of the, the, the separate permanent substances that are self-identical, we have serial events of becoming in relationship. So I, I hope that's clear about Whitehead and process thought but then I could try to shift and say, what does that have to do with unknowing? Yes, do it. Shall I make that connection, that apophatic connection? It's not easy to do. There's a huge school of thought that I'm very much a part of, as I mentioned, coming out of Claremont and process thought and John Cobb's amazing teaching in 97. He's a leading environmental activist who drives multiple <laughs> websites um, Check out the Cobb Institute. They've got ecosystems. Okay, so John Cobb going on and on this whole network of process thinkers, uh, some of them uh, theological, many of them secular, uh, doing amazing work with this relational paradigm. And it's often ecological work uh, and activism. You know, there's a whole garden project close to Claremont where John lives in retirement that is helping a low-income part of a neighboring town. So it's that's all very real and active and, and beautiful, and I hope that I'm a significant part of it. None of that really necessarily connects to mystical traditions or traditions of unknowing. And when I started intuiting a connection that I needed to make, my teachers, John Cobb, David Griffin, were perplexed. But because they're process theologians, they were open to the process of my creativity. So they, didn't, they didn't stifle it, but they, they, they didn't see it for quite a while. Uh, you know, because all those relationality seems more about making new kinds of knowledge possible. And it is. 
And I love that. Uh, new kinds of awareness, sensibility, feeling uh, that come into consciousness. Right. But what does that have to do with this unknowing? So what I, I've tried to track out, it is that very uh, intensity of our relationality. It is that openness moment to moment that we can't shut down even if we numb ourselves and harden ourselves. We still can't escape from our interdependence with our world with those relations. We can just make them much more poor uh, and skimpy and, and maybe even horrifying, uh, but we can't escape that relationality. So my point is that this relationality in its density um, is already always more than we can know, much more than we can know. And process thought does recognize that most of our relationships are unconscious. Uh, that we're taking them in and we're holding them in uh, mostly unconsciously. So I want to say that unconsciousness is its own kind of unknowing and its own kind of apophasis, but it, it doesn't necessarily make for mysticism. Mysticism would then be offering a, a perspective for really being mindful of how much we do not know how much of our universe we do not know. And if we have a sense of, of some ultimacy, whether we call it God or not, that is the ground of our universe from which all these particulars come forth, uh, then our unknowing of, of the depth and the multiplicity and the complexity of the particulars Takes us, takes us down into the depth of that very ground of this endlessly multiplying uh, material universe of ours. So the materialities themselves have a little apophatic edge of the unknowable. And, you know, I could I have a whole chapter on quantum theory that makes that, you know, it's very clear in science, every little bit of matter. <laughs> has an unpredictable element to it. That's, that's unknown. Uh, but that's a very microcosmic element. And if we go down deeper into the meditation of the ground of all of that, uh, then we are opening up into a kind of abyss <laughs> of knowing. And that means a kind of abyssal non-knowing. Uh, that it's it, it's always a more than, a deeper than, being in excess of any being uh, that the apophatic points to. And one doesn't need to stop and meditate on it. Again, I, I just love and admire the whole world of process thinkers, and most of them don't, but they have usually some spiritual practice, whatever they'll call it. I mean, John Cobb is a good United Methodist <laughs> congregant and minister and <laughs> preaches regularly. A lot of process thinkers practice forms of, of Zen meditation or of yoga. Why? So there might be a lot of spiritual practices, but they might not attend to that unknowing very explicitly. I think that if they have a spiritual practice, they are open to that mystery, that unknowing. They just don't necessarily know that they're meditating on the unknowing, unknowing to the, to the second power. And I just find it helpful for some of us to enter knowingly into that unknowability. Mm. Uh, 
I mm. think it helps to recognize that what we call God uh, is a word, as as my Sir Eckhart put it, that God is a word, a word unspoken. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's the iconoclasm, but you just spoke it. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. a spe- it's a speaking that is apophasis, speaking away, reminding yeah. us that the word God that we can speak is an attempt to utter a word that we can never, never say, never directly mm. hear, but we are in its field of resonance. So I mm. think it's crucial for some of us who, for whatever reasons, are more tuned to that unknowing to respect it so they aren't frightened when they come up against great uncertainties. Yeah, and that's the edge of the chaos that I want to orient our listeners to, which is that if God is, you know, and and maybe you can help land this better than I will, but this ultimate relationality that is creating itself in every moment then shifts our ideas of God up there in the sky, God outside of time, because, you know, these old concepts, these old foundations had us describing you know, any notion of divinity had to be perfect. And by that, we meant outside of time. It couldn't change, you know, had to be unchanging in order for it to be all powerful and all knowing. Well, whoops, (laughs) you know, that hasn't, that hasn't exactly served us well to create these great um, domination paradigms of power in which the ultimate divinity is set outside of changeability. And so if our notions of God descend into this, becoming with us. I mean, you know, let's just pretend for a second that incarnation was a Christian concept and <laughs> that we wanted to actually believe. And God descends into this 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 process with us, becomes part of the process with us, which is to say God is in the adventure of creativity with us, not outside of it, not pulling the strings like puppets. Then that means that we have a different orientation to uncertainty, which is to say, uncertainty is not problematic. Unknowing isn't a problem. Unknowing isn't that you didn't get the right thing right, or that you've fallen off the train of rightness, whatever your beliefs are, or that you've, you've, you've missed a turn in the path of life and got lost. And that might actually be true, but that being in that state of lostness or unknowing is not a problematic place, but a deeply creative one, that actually there's something about unknowing that invites an imagination that is greater. So then help these pieces come together for us then. If God is in this process with us and the event horizon is chaotic, a Tehomic deep, as you like to write, and you write so beautifully about, then the moments when we slip into a depth of a place we cannot articulate or haven't been to before or can't understand, maybe that is God becoming something new in us in that moment. So maybe it's not a problem. As you say, uncertainty, of course, can be terrifying. It, it can be a problem. It can be terrifying. Uh, you can have to make a life or death decision in a matter of moments, and mm-hmm. someone you love might die if you don't make the right one, and yet you don't know. So, of course, I, we're not saying no, no. Just have an apophatic meditation, and you'll <laughs> you'll have the answer. And you're not saying that. There's a, a dark edge in, in the mm-hmm. in the troubling sense uh, of uncertainty, but 
more generally, there is just the uncertainty that actually is part of every moment of becoming, that is the space of, of, of spontaneity. It's the uncertainty that's the space of creativity. It's the uncertainty of the uncertainty principle. <laughs> so again, down to, down to the, 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 the smallest quantum event and up through our dire complexity of experience, uh, uncertainty is the, the medium of creativity. Once you have no uncertainty, you have no creativity. Then it's all charted out. <laughs> no distinction between the map and the actual landscape. But here with this more impressionistic uh, map, we're pointing to a landscape that's supercharged with the unknown, with the mystery about even how our conversation is going to end, about moment to moment, if we're going to really hear each other, right? if we're going to be able to really respond to each other, if we're going to reach the hearers we want to reach. Uncertainty just just swirls around us with the, <laughs> with those waters of the deep uh, the Tehom, and sometimes it's rather superficial uncertainty, and sometimes it's it's anguishingly proud. But I think what what holds it together, if we're on a kind of religious or spiritual pathway that centers in care, in love, and therefore has strong ethical commitments, if that's our pathway, it's no problem relating to the process viewpoint. It's right there, and, and you summarized it beautifully, what you were just saying before. I mean, with, that we are in our interdependence with each other, always confronted with new possibilities amidst the uncertainty of our connections, and we can connect more mindfully and more effectively, or less so, but we're called into ever richer networks of relationality relationality and dynamic process. And what we're here wanting to emphasize that the, the love that perhaps lures that process towards greater richness of experience, both through wider sharing of the experience and through intensification of that experience, that love attunes us to the mystery of the other. If I think I know my partner there in the other room, I certainly seem to be failing in my love. Hmm. In my love of that person, I know lots and lots, some of it. I love to know other parts I, I wish I wasn't so aware of. There's a lot I love in that person I love. But whatever it is that I love, I know a lot of it. But if that love is alive, I'm always knowing that there's more that I don't know. In part, because he's really a complex being, and there's a lot he doesn't even know about himself. But also because he, like you and like me, is still becoming. So there's that unknowingness of what already makes us up, and there's that unknowingness of what will become in the uncertainty of the immediate future. So love is always the risk <laughs> of relating to the unknown. Once you think you know the other, I, I think that's no longer love. That's you know, possession. You've got him. <laughs> You've got her. But if you really love them, then the mystery about who they really are will keep surprising you and striking you and sometimes disturbing you and worrying you, sometimes also 
uh, calling in attractive ways and transforming ways. And that's a parable for the love of God or love as God or love as the, the core of the, the cosmos, or I should say love as the heart of the universe, uh, that there is something pulsing there, drawing more and more reality out of relation and more and more relation out of reality. And so there are subtle processes of quantum connection and then of dense evolution uh, that we know a lot about and a lot we don't know about. Uh, and it's not a sentimental love at the heart of this universe. <laughs> it's a universe in which mortality, death, and suffering seem to be very much a part of things. Finitude. Uh, so it's not sentimental love. It's not a simple parental condescending love. Uh, it's an adventurous erotic love. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that you're dovetailing into that erotic, ecological view of love. Because I think the experience for so many of us has been to feel this call to move beyond, into the wilds beyond our fences, to quote my friend Bayo Akomalafe's work. This, this longing to keep moving outside of the boundaries of what we think we know into the wonder and the wonderstruck state of awe, which is reverence of what we do not know, what we cannot yet imagine. And that, that for so many of us, that's been the journey of not quite feeling at home anymore in the church and or maybe not really identifying with Christianity as mm -hmm. such in the ways that we grew up because we didn't have, we didn't have folks like you in the pulpit just saying <laughs> we didn't have people singing you know the songs of the Teomic deep and inviting people to understand god as being in the process with us so so perhaps love is inviting us now to collectively consider that unknowing certain aspects of what we think we know about christianity is also not problematic. Perhaps we're being invited to compost these ideas into a more erotic ecological worldview so that God can become the community formerly known as God, which is my mm -hmm. sort of slang term for God, active, present in this world as this world, because that kind of relational worldview is urgently needed. So is it a surprise that that would be calling to us now in this moment to reconsider how humility or the apophatic way could change what we think we know so that we can be reverent toward the more than human world in this moment in time? Well, everything you said is just so right on that I, I could just say amen and, and be done. But I'll underscore that amen free by just saying, yeah, there's something about this this moment of world history that is calling us into new kinds of awareness of our interdependence, our ecological interdependence. We're called into a new awareness of it because the web of relations is fraying badly because of systemic human economic practices. Uh, so mm -hmm. because the ecology of the living habitable earth is now threatened, we seem to be called with urgency into a new awareness of the, the webs of life that, that make us up. 
And that new knowing of the webs of life is also a recognition of how much we do not know and what humility needs to be practiced in our knowing. Otherwise, we already know, you know, that's basically it. And the mm. world uh, it can go to hell. Uh, and it will if that attitude prevails, which it does among many of those who make the most influential uh, decisions, uh, largely corporate decisions about how the matter of the earth will be processed. If, if a humility uh, can filter through and prevail, uh, if our faith traditions can help that, if our alternative traditions can help that, I think there's a hope, right? If some humility uh, can prevail that helps us to know that there is very much we do not know and therefore that any certainty uh, about how things are going to work out should be suspended. Certainty that we're all doomed <laughs> to ecological or nuclear destruction. That's just nihilism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some certainty that the ecological problem will be fixed, you know, by our smart <laughs> technology. That's just denialism. So nihilism and denialism are leading us along dangerous tracks. But the third way, uh, a wisdom path, which is a kind of apophatic relationalism, would allow us to work with our communities and with our traditions uh, in ways that allow them to work with each other. So I'll go on working through a particular form of Christianity that is associated with my theological school. It's a radically pluralistic form of Christianity. And I have a United Methodist Church I go to that's that's a leading activist in Manhattan around LGBTQI rights, for instance. I'm trying to get them to be more ecologically aware. And at Drew, we have strong ecology and, and social justice programs built into our theological training of Christian ministers and scholars. So that's just one path. It's a form of Christianity that opens into great big networks of, of, of Christian communities and churches. So I'm glad to have some influence there. Uh, but it's a form of Christianity that recognizes that if we think we're practicing love, that means maybe, first of all, we better practice some love towards non-Christian communities and traditions, um, endlessly needing the forgiveness of, of Jews, for instance, for the anti-Semitism of Christian history. But... Uh, that I won't get specific about the multiple traditions, but to, pra to practice this, this humble relationality, this relationality of knowing that we don't, don't know in relation to other religious traditions and in relation to secular approaches to the world, secular ethical traditions and social justice and environmental movement folk. We need to do this because we need the coalitions we need the solidarity. The non-theistic uh, William Connolly, political philosopher's work I really love, very much a non-theist, but he reaches out a lot into theological engagement because he recognizes that if democracy and ecology in this country and therefore this world are going to have a real chance of prevailing, then we need the sort of broad coalitions that... Uh, will cross between religion and irreligion and will cross within and between multiple 
religious traditions. So a really radical ecumenicity is needed, isn't it, in order to practice the eco-social ecology. <laughs> and ecumenism and ecology both share the same that same that root eco uh, from the Greek oikos, home. You know, so to live together on this home planet in which now perhaps way too many of us are trying to live together in way too unequal forms, we need to come to radically different ecologies of interrelation. And that requires new ways of knowing each other. And we don't ever come to new ways of knowing unless we recognize the limits of the knowledge we already have. Right? So always there's the, the apophatic shadow that allows us to keep to keep learning from each other and therefore to to collaborate in more mm. actually loving practices for the world. And that's so beautiful, Catherine, to end on this note because I think we have experienced some 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 pretty troubling years <laughs> and uh, are experiencing a very troubling time in which our you know our politics are are being polarized around certitudes and beliefs and information wars and so i think for our listeners to consider unknowing or the practice of the apophatic as the humility with which we can relate to each other once more across these divisions that can allow for us, as you said so beautifully, to collaborate, to co-create a future of possibility together, which is to say, to give birth to God in a new way in this world. That fills me with a tremendous amount of hope and possibility and longing. And I'm so grateful to you for your incredible contributions and work and how they've shaped me. But I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and, and to our listeners today. Thank you so much. It's been a, been a real pleasure. And if I've influenced your, your thinking in any way at all, I am profoundly honored and look forward to following more of what you're up to. This is beautiful work. Thank you. So we're learning how to appreciate our maps, while also realizing that at a certain point, we have an opportunity to improv jazz, to compost what has been, to make room for what could be. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking from this conversation. To see God in process or to consider the divine as being in process with us is to understand that uncertainty is the medium of creativity. In other words, if we believe that whatever the divine is, is ultimately creative, then it makes sense that we're having to reframe that creativity within the uncertain and unknowable, within the chaos of the deep of what we haven't imagined yet. I mean, it almost seems obvious when we say it at one level, and yet really when, when we pull these things apart and recognize that so much of our theologies rest on the hubris that we know who or what God is, 
<laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous at one level. It's ridiculous. It's like, okay, hang on a second hang on, which is, I think, why I was always so um, <laughs> problematic, I think, in Another Name for Everything in the podcast that I was on with Richard Rohr, why I was always like, you know, wait, wait a minute, why, why, why are we caring so much about this particular theologian, or why are we, are we, are we seriously still living out the ontology of that mystic over there, or that theologian? You know, it wasn't because there was a lack of respect on my part, but because I had this intuition of recognizing that we, we don't know anything. <laughs> and that unknowability, I think, brings me to the second piece of True North wisdom from this conversation, which was that this apophatic path, this path of unknowing, is simply a path of ultimate humility. And that when we live from that place of humility, we live from a place of love, which is to say, relationality. When we humble ourselves to the truth that we don't know, that, that we are always in the mystery of unknowing, then we approach one another with reverence instead of that instinct to dominate with certainty, with identities, with terms. Oh, I know who that person is. They're a Republican. Oh, I know what they're about because they're a conservative Christian. Oh, I know who that, you know, and whatever other forms of judgment that we want to cast out toward one another in these declarative deterministic statements. It reminds me of the words of Mary Oliver when she says, you know, when she's speaking about her death and she says, you know, I want to step through the door full of curiosity wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood, as a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name, a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. In each body, a lion of courage and something precious, precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I want, I want to live what, what she said. <laughs> I, I want that. I want to live that type of life too. The life that Mary Oliver describes. And I have found that process and thinkers like Catherine Keller invite me into that state of wonder, precisely because like the mystics, they put us in a posture of deep reverential humility toward the unknowable, which is everything, which is mystery, which is love. That's it for today's episode on Unknowing Podcast. Next week, our final episode of Season 3 in Composting Christianity will be with Dr. Andreas Weber. He is an ecological philosopher. He has greatly influenced my thinking in the last year, and I cannot wait to share this incredible, juicy conversation with you. As promised, I wanted to share a little bit about the courses that I'm offering, a year's journey called The Weave the Weave is basically the entirety of the four courses that I make available throughout the year. There is the Womb course in winter, Woo in the spring, Wield in the summer, and Ween in the fall. I'll still be making each of these courses available individually, so if you just want to take one season, you'll still be able to do that. But I wanted to offer a year's journey for those of you who actually want to 
consider 2023 as an opportunity to really dig in to these concepts of unknowing, but explore how they impact our creativity and our transformation, the alchemy of both of those happening at the same time. So many of you have asked me if I would ever consider doing a form of spiritual companionship or creative companionship one-on-one sessions with individuals. And I'm going to be doing that for those of you who choose to take the year's journey, the weave together with me. So I wanted to share that with all of you in case that's something that could actually enrich your path as you seek to metabolize these ideas that we explore on unknowing. To learn more about the weave or the individual courses, you can click on the show notes below. Lastly, It is the end of the year, so I do feel compelled to make this final appeal (laughs) to those of you who are considering your year-end giving. I want to invite you to consider offering something to unknowing. If this podcast has been meaningful to you, if you are enjoying the exploration on the different seasons that we've done thus far, I want to invite you to become a patron or to consider giving a tax-deductible donation of any amount to the show to help us to continue to keep going. For information on either of those pathways of support, see the show notes below. Finally, in closing, you know I like to end each episode with a little bit of poetry. The poetry that I've selected for season three is from David White's Sweet Darkness. He says, you must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.